This is a HeadGum Podcast. Craig, you know, I'm having a hard day. You know what I like to think about? What do you like to think about? <laughs> websites. Oh, yeah, websites are cool, <laughs> but I don't have websites, one. Websites can be both good and bad, but regardless of which kind of website you're trying to make, you should do it with Squarespace. <laughs> Squarespace <laughs> is the the good website. They're one of the good ones that helps you make websites. Uh, you can cl- you could sell online. You can market your brand. You get analytics. You get all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they have award-winning design. They have world-class engineering. They have beautiful templates and powerful e-commerce tools. So you can make pretty much any kind of website that your heart might desire. Uh, Our website, Squarespace, we've used them for as many years as our podcast has been a thing. True. And they are A-OK. So if that sounds A-OK to you, go to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace.com slash overdue. Use the offer code overdue. Save 10%. Make a website. Squarespace. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And sometimes it's fun to really hit the G at the end of my name and come off the schwa like I'm doing a <sighs> skate trick. Craig. Craig. And then Craig. I do a kickflip and land on my face. <laughs> it's better than hitting the G at the beginning of your name, the secret G. The one that... The silent G. <laughs> That's everybody... David, the way David you spell said Craig's the name is... G. <laughs> The way you spell Craig's name is G-C-R-A-I-G, mm-hmm. but you don't pronounce the first G. Please do not. It's incorrect. Um, welcome mm-hmm. to our book podcast, where one of us reads a book we've never read before and talks to the other person about it. That's the standard formula we've been doing here for several years, and uh, you guys <laughs> get to enjoy it, hopefully. I might need to declare, and this is this goes for me, too, I might need to declare a moratorium over us talking about how long we've been doing yeah, this podcast. You know, Just because we are surprised by it every week doesn't mean people don't need to want to hear about it every week. No, that's fair. And I, I think that is just we we came up on another year anniversary of the show and it's we've been the world has been long for a while now. It's and been so a long I, world. And yeah. I, I talked, I think, in an earlier episode about how much 2021 is throwing off my year math yeah, relative yeah, to yeah. 2020. Yeah. Yeah. So. so yeah we are we are in an interesting simpatico mood today andrew what are we what book are we talking about what book did you read for this year episode i read on a pale horse by piers anthony which is the first entry in mr anthony's incarnations of immortality series uh this book was a recommendation uh from one of our patreon supporters maggie thank you maggie um maggie have anything to say or no no okay Thanks, yeah, Maggie. I, yeah, I, I did double check, but I didn't this work speaks for itself. Yes. Says Maggie. Um, we're going to talk about P- Pierce Anthony here for a bit, and then we're going to talk about the book uh, and maybe why people have ever enjoyed it uh, and whether or not Andrew did. Um, I think I would like to say up top that it's okay. I count myself among the people who don't like Pierce Anthony, <laughs> and I say that as someone who read a lot of Pierce Anthony uh, as a teen. I read a lot of the Xanth series, which I believe... Oh, I didn't know that 
Yeah, I didn't know you were a, a peer's head. I was. N- I don't think I was. I read probably seven or eight of those books. There are forty-three of them. So I oh, okay. I was gonna say eight <laughs> sounds like a lot, but if there's forty-three, like expressed as a percentage, I guess it's not that many. Yeah, and we're gonna talk in this opening section about some stuff that has really turned a lot of people off from Pierce and his work, both things that are in his work and outside of it. Um, but we're also like, I think our goal with the episode, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, if you have any different takes is to like put that stuff out there, say, this is what's going on, but Mm -hmm. then also like just talk about the book and your experience reading it. And then if people still want to go read it, that's their deal. (laughs) And then, or, and, and also like, I, I certainly made a couple notes of like, I'd be interested to talk about what stood out to you about the book and maybe if there's other authors and, and things that come to mind that maybe people want to go check out too. Um, Cause I think that's where some people might wind up with this that's one fine. here. Yeah. You're, you are, I think in uh, Orson Scott card mode in your response to this. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> this <full> author, <laughs> you're kind of, and it's, it's, it's tough and we don't need to get all the way into like, is, does the artist's yeah. work still retain value when the artist seems like kind of a jerk? I don't know. <laughs> no, I think there's still value. I think we, I think we could talk about the, the fact yeah. that he definitely does seem like a jerk. Yeah. While also acknowledging that people who aren't jerks have read and enjoyed his work, yeah. and that's fine. I I don't think I am a jerk. You your opinion might mm. differ, but mm. on a good day, I'm probably not a jerk. Mm. Let's talk about Pierce Anthony. He was born in 1934 (laughs) in Oxford, England. He moved to Vermont as a young lad after his parents, my notes say his parents, that's a fun typo. His parents were forced forced, raised by bears. They were doing uh, Quaker aid work in Barcelona, Spain during the Spanish Civil War. They were forced out of there. Then World War II started happening, and so they left Britain. Uh, they moved to sunny Vermont, where he attended Goddard College after he grew up. Um, met his wife there. They married. He spent two years in the Army so that he could earn a steady paycheck. Uh, worked in his battalion's newspaper, apparently. Tried to become a, fir- a full-time writer after a few years doing that. Didn't work at first. Taught English for a few years and then went back into his full-time career. His first novel, Cthon, was published. <laughs> what a swing to name your first novel that, huh? <laughs> Published in 1967, um, he's had several Hugo and Nebula nominations. I think the first um, Xanth novel, which is a spell for a chameleon, I think it's called, something like that, um, was nominated. Yeah, a spell for chameleon um, was nominated for some awards. I found some stuff both on his website and in some... Uh, biography sketches, like bio sketches of him. I had trouble tracking down the specifics. He apparently sued multiple publishers claiming that they tampered with his work. And he's had a habit of switching publishers a lot over the years. Yeah. He's, so I didn't read the entire author's note at the end of uh, On a Pale Horse on account of I fell asleep and took a little <laughs> surprise nap in the middle of it. I was. It's been a long weekend. I'm trying to do some work in our bathroom, and everything I do, like I'm in the phase of a project where everything you do just ends up making more work. I'm not at the point where anything's coming back together yet. Ah, uh, sure. Kind of yeah. Stressing me out a okay. little bit. I've got to go lie. It's kind of 
kind of nuts about it. Okay. <laughs> um, so I fell asleep. But before I did fall asleep, I did read the first bit of this author's note where he says cool, gracious things like... Um, Therefore, it was chancy to market on a pale horse for many publishers seem to be uninterested in innovation. These publishers just can't pick up what I'm putting down. Um, And then I have, as may be apparent, not much respect for editors as a class. Oh, that's a cool thing. Because I guess some editors were mean to him and didn't immediately publish his first few books. And then Mm. when he wanted to start writing non- uh, like sci-fi fantasy genre fiction the editors didn't like those either cool and so editors are bad he's got a whole section on his website that is like amazon reviews of publishing houses <laughs> like just open season on submission processes for various uh publishing houses so i don't know i mean listen that's not to say that oh yeah i Mm -hmm. take edits super well as a writer and it's also not to say that these institutions publishing houses don't have problems are yep yeah not without problems like all institutions except for ours overdue doesn't have any problems none whatsoever thanks Uh, for asking (laughs) um it feels a little you don't have to be such a big jerk about it i guess is what i came away from this thinking i was reading it and all i could think about was that character in that stephen king novel bag of bones who started as like a real stephen king cipher mad about his publisher mistreating him for not selling enough books yeah like Mm -hmm. that's the vibe i got um there is like a whole this american life episode about some like teens who loved pierce anthony books so much that they moved down to florida Mm -hmm. that might be where people are also familiar with him just wanted to put that out if you've ever if you're like who's is this that guy i heard on that radio show eight years ago yeah it is just (laughs) (laughs) that's a weird i think my least favorite this american life segment will always remain um oh shoot what's his name the guy who writes like memoir stuff but it's all lies oh david Uh, Sedaris. Sedaris. (laughs) yes like i don't i don't like his stuff that much i find that the least the least uh mode in which i enjoy his writing yeah um but uh like focus on a weird thing that some like producer has been obsessed with it can also be very hit or miss and i feel like that's what this piers anthony thing must have been (laughs) it seems like um this book on a pale horse was published in 1983 as we mentioned it's the first of the incarnations of immortality series takes its name from the book of revelation um has spawned comic was the inspiration for the series dead like me on showtime i think there are eight books each centering mostly on a different one of these characters in the series I'll leave it to you, Andrew, a little later on to tell me about these supernatural offices that these characters take. Sure. And what that might mean. Um, And so the stuff, let's get to the stuff before we take our break. So there is an article on litreactor.com by Joshua Chalinski, I believe, Chaplinski, excuse me, from December 2011. That is writing about themes of underage sex and sexual abuse in a number of Anthony's novels. And he highlights this book um, called Firefly, which he describes as a pornographic horror novel. He talks about Tatham Mound and Bio of a Space Tyrant. And he even talks about some of the stuff in the Xanth 
series, which seems really laden with what seems to me, having never read those books, no, having read those books but never gone back to read them, excuse me, um, seems to me a mix of that kind of like the stuff that the worst parts of stereotypical anime sex stuff, like panty joke peeping I'm stuff. I'm sorry, anime? Did yeah. you mean anime? Excuse me. Um, no, mm-hmm. anime is the good stuff. <laughs> Oh, and anime is the best. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that before. Um, as lo- also wrapped up in like fantasy tropes of like medieval child bride stuff, which as a tween reading those books that are aimed, even though they're they're not like labeled YA and weren't at the time, there's a lot of like winky, nudgy, this is sex, but I'm not going to talk about it explicitly because you're an adolescent and like you you get that experience all the time from adults too, like where they won't actually talk to you straight up about it. But put in the context of some of his other work, it definitely reads grosser than I remember. Well, and it's to hear you describe it that way. It's definitely got a, like, this is just how things would have been back then because I chose a vaguely medieval setting for my completely made up fantasy world. Exactly. Which is not a good defense. Um, And the stuff in, in the book Firefly is worse um, and Chaplinsky like su- like summarizes the article at the end. So take a refresher course and tell me what is the verdict, dear readers? Is Anthony an artist exploring themes of sexuality, or merely a dirty old man getting his jollies? The majority of adults <laughs> who re- who revisit Anthony's work seem to find his predilections that much more pronounced and more than just a little unsettling. Um, the quote that you referenced, Andrew, comes from a slash dot like Q and A that he did. Um, I'm not sure when that was. 2002? Oh, boy. I mean, Slashdot, they would have to be pretty old. Yeah. Um, and it's this, like, uh, you know, a reader is like, hey, I've admired your work for a long time. Some of the depictions of women have, you know, I've gone and reread them, and I'm, I'm finding them a little troubling. There's also uh, underage sex in these books, and not underage, but, like, characters who are underage uh engaging in intercourse and there's, there's definitely a, a, a actually an example of of all yeah. this stuff from this book that i can read when you're done talking about this yeah so. and as you said andrew his answer to like is this wrong and what do you <laughs> like what do you have to say about this is way too long involves him talking about being an appreciator of the female body in a way that like I just forgot that people talk this way sometimes. <laughs> and what does he close with? Why does he say, I, I oppose pedophilia, but don't belong in any outfit referring to some like specific anti-pedophilia organization. And I don't know. It's just not a good look. And at best, it is a bad look. At worst, it is skeevy, awful, bad stuff. I mean, the the my least favorite part of that that giant block quote is like him talking about his relationship with his wife and listen, like what you do with another consenting adult is oh is yeah whatever. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but he kind of using it as like a hey yeah I like looking at young naked women what of it I mean it can't be bad because my wife thinks it's fine the other day we were watching a video we're watching a Bo Derek movie he says and. And I got up to go like pee or get a snack or whatever it is that he said. And 
I came back and my wife was like, oh, hey, you missed this sick, naked young woman. And she rewound it for me so I could watch it. Like it's, it was and it was cool. And my my wife's chill and she <laughs> she can hang and I'm fine and it's fine. Yeah, it's bad news. And anytime he's he's talked about like the inherent misogyny in some of his work and depictions of of women in his work, he he has written so much stuff that he then just kind of comes back. He's like, "What? But what about this woman? And what about this woman that I wrote? And what about this woman that I wrote? And don't you see yeah. how this person makes excuses for that?" And it's, I think, also a lot of it is like it's kind of, it's correct me if I'm wrong and, and maybe this book is is a little bit different but like a lot of his stuff is really like kind of cheeky plot driven genre stuff and like that is not always the best vehicle for for some writers to convey like dicey moral stuff in a way that like it that isn't just like schlocky and exploitative I mean, this this book is pretty explicitly concerned with like morality and what counts as good and what counts as bad. And I think a lot a lot of its exploration of it, like I didn't I didn't dislike this book. I I didn't now I did not read anything about Piers Anthony before I read it. In part because I think we'd gotten a, an email already at that yeah. point that yeah. was like, "Hey, uh, Piers Anthony is not great." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I think we wanted to make sure we talked about this because like if that we're going to talk about the book, I'd feel no compulsion to further endorse the person who wrote the book. And I don't think discussing the book necessarily is an endorsement of the worst things that he's ever said. Mm -hmm. Um, And now Craig's going to hit the big red button on his desk that brings down the neon cancel sign (laughs) and plays the (laughs) air horn. Man, if I had that wired up, I've been thinking about getting a soundboard and if it would just break this show in half if I got a soundboard. Keeps it like I've been thinking about getting a video capture card and a green screen and a soundboard. I'm just I'm fully ready for you to become the joker of podcasting and just get all these like wacky morning DJ like morning zoo accoutrement and bring them to our show. I'm so close. Uh, Late stage overdue is going to get real weird. I mean, when you got your own office and your own house, you can do whatever you want in there and not have to worry about it. I can't wait. You could paint a wall green. People do that. Hey, they do. Yeah. Accent wall slash streaming gamer wall. My gamer wall. I see your eyes lighting up and I feel like we should take a break before things get out of hand. Okay. See you on the other side. Andrew, can I tell you about this week's other sponsor? I don't know. Can you? I bet I can. (laughs) I got you. My fourth grade teacher did that to me all the time. (laughs) The the can I go to the bathroom trick? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, Overdue is also brought to you this week by our sponsor, BetterHelp, which makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, convenient, so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with them in a safe, private, online environment in under 48 hours, and you can send a message to your counselor at any time. The service is also available for clients worldwide, and licensed professional counselors have a broad range of experts 
expertise. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash overdue. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, better H-E-L-P dot com slash overdue. Giddy up, Andrew. I'm here on my horse. It's pale. What is, <laughs> oh, is it pale? Yeah. Good. I was going to ask. So this book is on a pale horse. Okay. And that's a reference to death, like the one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I'm familiar. Yes. Yeah. And death rides pale horse. Now, there's not like, there's definitely more than like four, like in the like, God deity people in this yeah so i guess all he wanted to piers anthony wanted to lift from the myth was the pale horse part sure Uh uh-huh but that's where the name comes from it is my understanding that other entities in this series include time Mm -hmm. fate yes war yeah mother nature Mm -hmm. uh evil well yeah like satan technically but the pantheons get mixed up a little bit because um, Zane, our hero, does talk about like the Persephone incident and the pomegranate seeds. Mm. So, like, I guess Satan also could be Hades. So, I guess just like general underworld God in all religions, cool. and then and then God, God, and then good God, yeah, yeah, good God. And then I think I night or nighttime or something. I don't know what that. That means. is not in this one. Okay. Okay. It is. But everyone thing, else but... is in this one. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, what is this one about? So we open with this guy named Zane. He seems down on his luck. He's in a, like a magic pawn shop, basically. Uh, it is explained pretty early on that science and magic coexist in this world. It is sort of like our world. Uh, there was like a World War II that was ended by uh, people dropping nukes. Okay. So like science and magic are sort of developing in parallel. Uh, so you've got like nukes because science exists, but you've also got uh, like flying magic carpets. And there is a funny section where Zane is driving down a road sort of mid novel and he's passing billboards and they are competing billboards from a company that makes cars and a company that makes f- magic carpets huh. and the, and the magic carpet carpet company's like, man, don't you hate getting stuck in traffic? And the car company is like, man, don't you hate when it's raining and you're riding a carpet and you don't have a roof over you. Okay. Okay. And it just kind of goes like that. But that, that is the world we're operating in. Um, Zane, he's being offered a few different like magical stones that do things. Uh, and, and the person selling this stuff is doing some like classic sort of shystery pawn shop kind of things where he's, you know, he, he just wants to make, make a sale, any sale. And so everything that Zane looks at, like he's just, he's talking it up like it's the best thing in the whole world. Okay. So there's a there's a death stone that can tell you when you're when you're gonna die by changing color, and it changes color. And he's like, "Whoa, this death stone! It, it really works, and you're gonna die." <laughs> and but it's too expensive. And then there's a love stone where it will direct you to a compatible partner, 
and you'll be in and they'll be in love with you and you'll be in love with them and it'll be great. It shines brightly and the guy's like, oh, wow, this one, this one really works. Look at it working. Aren't you lucky? And <laughs> I've never seen it shine so bright for anybody. <laughs> Am I giving you kind of a... Yes. A picture the, of the, the kind of sales car person salesman is. that is happening here. Yeah. yeah. And then he's given a wealth stone that can find wealth beyond Zane's wildest dreams. And wealth wealth is the main problem for this guy. They work out this just this weird deal where um Zane is going to use the like the love stone to find the person who he would be in love with, but then he's going to let the pawn shop owner swoop in and be and romance her instead. And then in exchange for that, he will be given the wealth stone because Zane doesn't have any money. And I don't even know why he's in this store in the first place. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so this all happens. And of course the woman is very beautiful and the pawn shop owner walks away. And is like, all right, bye. See ya. And this wealth stone turns out to be kind of sucky. It keeps finding like change in the couch cushions and stuff, but there's no, <laughs> and it will only, it like is getting tired. So it's not working very well. So he finds like a total of 16 cents with this thing and realizes that, Hey, maybe, uh, maybe I got screwed on this deal. Mm. Mm. And so he decides this sucks. I'm down on my luck. I'm going to take my own life. Oh, fun, fun and funny stuff. Um, and so he's going to do this and then he sees somebody coming into his apartment and before he can think of what happens, it's really a real Santa Claus situation. Oh. Santa Claus, the Tim Allen movie. Yes. Where, Without really even knowing what he's doing, he points the gun at death and shoots death in the face and kills death. And then fate shows up and is like, hey, you're death now. Oh, this fate is playing the role of Bernard the Elf. This I is guess, literally this. the Santa Claus. Well, I mean, this book was published in 1983, so technically the Santa Claus is on a pale horse. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> so Zane has to be death now. And this, so I I feel like this book starts better than it finishes. I think the world building and the way death and morality work is interesting. Uh, by the end where you get to like Zane is just trying to save a sexy lady who he's in love with and he's like fighting Satan. It feels kind of, you know how every kids movie ends with a chase sequence and We've, it just kind of feels perfunctory at, at this point. And there's like, you know, all any tension that this kind of scene ever might have had has just totally been leached out of it by overuse. We've talked about like that. We've talked about that specific issue for me, the biggest touchstone I'm sure I've mentioned it on the show is that chase sequence at the end of the little Prince movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It is wholly divorced from anything in that film. <laughs> like end chase sequences and kids movies end. Uh, comedic slow mo shots in kids movies. Also, while we're while we're talking about fixing kids movies, yo, can we? Can I just be mad about a comedic slow mo shot? In, yeah, get mad, man. In an ad for the gopher that runs the Pennsylvania lottery, and I have to see this ad <laughs> every day when I'm watching Jeopardy. He's a groundhog. He's the second this... most famous groundhog in Pennsylvania. His name is Gus, 
and mm-hmm. he run. He, I don't know if he runs the lottery or he's just really enthusiastic. <laughs> but I've been watching this stupid commercial for the last three months where he's eating at a like a hibachi restaurant where the guy's like cooking all the food. And in Wait, the middle, is he being res- is he socially distancing? Is he being responsible? No, this was filmed in the before times, and they're not mm. acknowledging it. Um, okay, but the guy flips like a, a onion or something at the groundhog and it's like slow-mo like going at him and like the matrix style he eats it and everyone goes whoa (laughs) and like it's a fine commercial but i've seen it two million times and well i'm sure all of our 75 year old listeners in the philadelphia media market will (laughs) will be Who watch Wheel and Jeopardy and then the evening news and then go to bed at eight thirty? Yeah, will really identify with your anger about this. I just curtain, this need you. Ad. I just needed to get that off my chest. I get. I, I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah. yeah. No. This steam. This this grinds your gears. It steams your beans, and you need to talk about it. And I'm sure. glad that we could create a space for you to do that. So you weren't as fond of the ending of this book, but what in the beginning of it? I guess worked for you or in the first half or whatever. Zane is just figuring out how death works and we learn stuff about him as a character and things that he's done in his mysterious past that make him a particularly interesting death. So he's got like all these cool gadgets. Like he's got this watch that, uh, um, so death doesn't need to personally attend to everybody who's going to die. Right. He only needs to, um, show up and sort of help along the people who whose souls are like perfectly balanced between good and evil. So this does have like a vaguely Christian-y theology deal happening where there is a God and there is a Satan and they do run heaven and hell respectively. Um, but what you, like your soul's, status is determined pretty exclusively by like what you do and not like what you believe or, or, or anything like that. It's, okay. it's not unlike the system in the good place. And I don't know how much of the good place that you watched, I watched all of it. You... I'm, f- I'm familiar. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah it, like this doesn't even get all the way to the end, but one of the problems they're trying to solve in the good place is there is this point system and good things get you good points and bad things get you bad points but the system has not been updated in so long and it's very inflexible and it's not working and nobody's noticing yeah 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 yeah. um so that's sort of like like zane has issues with how like what counts as sin and what what counts as something good on your soul and it does seem like doing a bad thing for a good reason just gets you bad points and not good points. Okay. Um, so the example for Zane is technically he killed his mom, but he killed his mom because she was in the hospital, had like something terminal, I think maybe cancer. And she wanted like the, the, she was hooked to machines that were keeping her alive past her time. And she didn't want to be alive anymore. And she, like, in a moment of lucidity, says as much to Zane. And so he gets, like, a cheap spell that interferes with the equipment and kills her. And so he he is feeling the weight of having done this. And it does count as a bad thing on his, like, official soul count. Like, he, death only showed up 
to collect him because he was like close to 50 50 in the first place. Um, and so this is, yeah. So he, one of the, the core like moral things that the book is doing is like Zane working through that and deciding along with some other people that this was like ultimately a merciful and good thing to do, but that's just not how like the cosmos sees it for whatever reason. Okay. Yeah. Um, Okay, where are we? That well, so okay, that makes sense to me as like one of the thi- one of the standout things that might appeal and stick with someone who's read this book. Like one of you know one of the things we talked about in the in the top of the show was just that like uh, Anthony seems like he stinks real bad, but a lot of people encounter and have encountered his work without that knowledge, or you know when they were younger before they you know you were even maybe in the habit of re- of researching the authors of the books that they read and stuff like that. Um, so like, that's one thing that stands out to me is like, Oh, that's an interesting takeaway from this book. Is there other stuff about the book that jumps out at you as like someone who is a fan of this book might hang their hat on? I mean, I think that's, that's the main thing is just like, and, and by the time you're like uh, three quarters of the way through, I think like Zane has, sort of sorted this out and you're just into pure um like end of the book plot stuff which is the okay. stuff that i didn't i didn't vibe with as much but all of the thing and, and he is put into multiple situations where he has to decide what he's gonna do like is he just going to collect this person's soul and let them die um and there, there's this whole like complicated system where when somebody who is like close to being evenly balanced dies, like that person is just kind of suffering alive, but like mortally wounded or whatever until Zane yanks their soul out through their head. Oh, um, and his, his job is to do sort of an official like analysis of this soul and decide which and which side of the fence it falls more on. He's got a few like magical accoutrements to help him with this. Uh, he makes a few gut calls, but some of the most, like the most interesting things that he is doing as death, like as the holder of this office, um, as the Santa Claus, if you will, <laughs> um, is like, he, he meets somebody like a young woman who's like poisoned herself because her husband like left her for a younger woman and, and, I think I think she's like a middle-aged woman. Anyway, um and he and and Zane like talks to her and says like is this do you really want to like you know throw throw your life away because of this jerky idiot guy and and she takes an antidote and she and she doesn't end up dying. Like he he doesn't always collect the souls that he's there to collect. There is a Another scene where it's it's another like it's somebody who's hooked up to, to a machine and the machine is like keeping him from collecting the soul like it's literally like thwarting death and so he does what he did for his mother and like destroys it and then there are like five other people in there you don't you can see death and perceive him as death if you are like close to death or if you work around people who or if you like are a nurse or like work in some kind of business where you encounter death regularly Man, can you imagine everybody a else nurse at, a, at a hospital i mean like oh everybody death's visiting today Ugh, he's death's here back. 
It's just like when a like when a rep from like a, a pharma company visits, <laughs> except it's death there again, like handing out pens that say death on them and stuff. <laughs> so, but he is moving through parts of the world, like either undetected or unremarked upon. Yeah, people people either don't see him or they see what they or it's like a see what you want to see situation. Okay, okay. Like they'll they'll see him as like a you know if he if he isn't on a battlefield people will see him as a like a high-ranking officer who has the clearance codes to go wherever he needs to go to like do his stuff that that kind of thing sure um but but yeah there there are like five other people in that room and he is not technically slated to personally help any of them but he sees that they're all in the same situation and they all tell him like death would be a a relief for us it would be a a release and he goes ahead and disconnects them all even though it's like technically not his job so he is the interesting thing that zane is doing and by extension i guess that that anthony is doing is he has invented a death who is primarily motivated by compassion and mm. trying to reduce harm like he, he's doing all kinds of stuff that the previous death didn't do like when people write letters to death he answers them instead of throwing them away <laughs> what people, what? i don't know why people would write i mean it's just more like santa claus stuff i guess but okay. i don't know why you would write a letter to death usually it's people being like why did you take my mom you're a jerk yeah i did find multiple interesting that you said he's a death motivated by compassion i found multiple like Goodreads reviews and blog reviews that mention that here's one from Kara. It's a three star review on Goodreads. Three star Goodreads review. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I've long been a fan of anthropomorphized versions of death, which is just an amazing way to kick off actually a really decent, like essay long review of the book. I, whenever you say like anthropomorphized, it just sounds like you took a like a skull and you stuck googly eyes on it or something. <laughs> um, but it's like you know, and she goes on to this for a little bit of just talking about like, you know, it, it is it is the uh, the undiscovered country, as Hamlet said. Um, it is a thing that we cannot truly know about, and so wondering about it and its mechanics and its motivations, because that's how we perceive the world as people, as a thing that we've been doing forever. And it does sound like one of the things that stands out about this book. Uh, is this version of it? I did see some people who didn't actually care for Zane. Is he annoying? Is he what like what type of person is he? I mean, he can 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 you be more specific? Yeah, because me... like my so some of what I reacted to positively in in Zane is like him wrestling with the morality of this thing that he did for his mom and yeah. what that means for him in his work as professional death <laughs> um c-suite things death. i didn't yeah. care for as much kind of extends to our like what we talked about with anthony in the first place like women in this book are mostly props and zane interacts with them often as though they are props and then and then at the end you just get into like a, as you get into the like the action hero stuff you just get into some generic like hey i'm a i'm a bad boy and i'm just gonna i'm gonna use my death scythe and i'm gonna kick some butt and i'm gonna be awesome okay and and that like eh, whatever you know like it, it is a it's a trope and it 
it does what it does, but I don't find it super engaging, really personally. Yeah, there was another three star good read review from C. Three star good read review. Who said my main problem was the annoying protagonist. I don't know if this was something that was a rule for fantasy writing in the eighties, but what is with the <laughs> protagonist who's characterized as being intelligent, but who's as dense as a rock throughout the entirety of the book? Are there are there parts of the book motivated by Zane like not knowing what's going on, and maybe the reader gets ahead of him, or I don't know what this review is maybe speaking to but i didn't really get that sense i did get like a like a you're just a, just a regular no account down in his luck guy but actually you are the most special uh, person and okay. you're you're do, you're destined for greater things yes. and like that that trope is definitely here sure i don't know if it like reflects on zane's intelligence much she does one thing like he he ha- does have vices, including gambling, that he that basically helped get him into the dire straits that he was in when he decided that taking his own life would be the thing to do. Mm. But one, I don't know, like, man, this is the narrowest reference I could ever make. <laughs> but it's like in season three of 24, where Jack Bauer is addicted to heroin at the fir- in the first episode, but then by the time you're seven episodes in, he's kicked his heroin yes. addiction. It's a little bit like that. <laughs> I knew that you would get it. I don't know anybody else in our audience is gonna get it, but that is a thing that I think uh, shows of that era where you had that 24 or 22 episode dra- like dram- drama drama run. Um, Drama's the good stuff. It's where- like anime, <laughs> where where they had to come up with enough arcs to fill over 20 hour long episodes or 42 minute episodes or whatever. And like stuff's not going to make it the whole way. (laughs) They just didn't think it through. Uh, Mm -hmm. Okay. So Zane seems like it worked for you. Anything else about like stuff that didn't work for you? Stuff that didn't work was Zane's main uh, love interest, Luna. And this is, this is mostly just about how she's, written and how she operates mostly as like a damsel slash plot device rather than as a sure person. Um, so the, there are these behind the scenes machinations about why Zane is death. And it, it turns out that like all of the other office holders. So the ones you mentioned like time, fate, war and uh, nature, have all sort of conspired to put Zane in this office specifically because like in 20 years, Luna is going to uh, avert some catastrophe where in two decades, someone's going to be elected president of the United States and it's going to make the world a worse place. Um, and so stop me if you heard this one before. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, this happening in 1983 is like prescient two times by my count, or or in reaction to recent presidents of 1983, <laughs> recent or sure current. could also be prescient. Well, yes, could also be prescient a lot of times. Yeah. Um. Whew, man. Okay, but but uh, so it's like Luna's dad who is a magician i maybe yep. he's explored more in in 
future books, but he's really just uh, not, I don't know. He's kind of a mysterious know-it-all figure here. He's, he dies and he, he like extends his life so that he dies when Zane is death. So he can have Zane there to explain some stuff to him. Like, Oh yeah, here's my daughter. Uh, I think you two should get to know each other. Okay. Bye. And then he dies. <laughs> and he, it turns out he got his soul to 50, 50 by like with the help of Luna, his daughter who like had mind sex with a demon. Oh boy. To like take some of her father's like sin away. Nope. Um, Don't want it. And so they are both. The, the The book presents like her and her demon thing, and Zane and his mom both as being bad things for a good reason, like equal things. And this this is how they like understand and get to know each other. Um, and then the whole last third of the book is. Satan knows that Luna's going to do the, is going to help like save the world in the future. Um, and he doesn't want this to happen because he wants all the souls to come down into hell. And so he's going to try and kill Luna like out of, out of turn, basically like he's going to try and get her to die before she's technically supposed to. So this, so this thing can't happen. And it's this whole like, I'm not sure why she so readily like acquiesces to mm. her own death, but she basically decides that she, there's this whole scene with like this dragon that is, th- there are these weirdos out in Nevada who <laughs> take care of like the, the last few dragons that exist and the dragons only want to eat virgins. Oh, and cool. Luna technically is a virgin because it was only her mind that was sexed by the sex demon. And that's a cool dinosaur noise that you made. Mm-hmm. And then it gets into like paradox lands because some good Terminator okay. stuff. Yeah. So Zane is death and he only helps people who are like evenly balanced. But if he decides not to help somebody or he takes too long to help somebody, like it kind of stops up the whole apparatus and nobody can die anywhere. Huh. And so he decides basically to prevent Luna from dying. He's going to go on strike. Oh no. And all the like all the other office holder like sub god people are like they basically wanted this to happen to help to protect Luna so she could do this thing in 20 years. And so like she can't die because he won't kill her and then also he can't like Satan sends a bunch of guys after him, but they can't actually kill him because he can't, nobody would show up to collect his soul because he's death. Like you can't kill death (laughs) because death would need death to die. But he killed death. He killed death, but there is a probationary period (laughs) as death. Where your soul is just automatically 50-50 evenly split. And then once your probationary period is up, then you can continue accreting sin or goodness just like a regular person oh, would. Oh, okay, good. Glad that that's been it's solved. All, it's yeah. all explained. It's okay. all explained. Sure. 
Sounds like this like really cockamamie plot stuff did not do it for you. Yeah, just like whatever. He fights a big mantis. He kills a bunch of hellhounds with its coal scythe. Like, and then he gets the girl, and she's like, "Me, I really do love you. I was, oh, I didn't know if I could, but then I, but now I do." And he. So the other thing about Luna, and this started as a thing about Luna, and got into what I didn't like about the plot, <laughs> but there's this whole. She is. The way she is described consistently throughout the book is not my favorite. Okay. Because she is, and so she's compared to this woman who got away. Remember the pawn shop guy who takes like that person Zane could have been in love with at the beginning of the book? She was apparently super hot, super sexy, cool, hot lady. Uh, Luna is a little, you know, she's, she's pretty, I guess. She's kind of, she's described as neutral, Mm. looks wise, but then through, a combination of like a makeup and spells and clothes can make herself super cute. And so the book just does describe her relative hotness a lot of times. Oh, neat. Uh, Luna reappeared and this time she was stunning before clothes had converted her most of the way from neutral to attractive. This time they had completed the transition. Bright blue topaz glinted from a band placed in her hair and green emerald was set in her slippers. The rest of her between those two made the beauty of the gems pale. It's just like, do we have to do this? Yeah. Does it? Hmm. We don't. We actually don't. It's true. <laughs> like we don't have to. Just as is important for the the male gaze to be centered quite this much all the time, always, <laughs> maybe not. And it and it sounds like it. Nothing else you've said about this book puts it close, from what I'm hearing, to the books we talked about before the break, which seem way more troubling in content. And this is more like for lack of a better word, like conventional bad male gazy stuff. I think it's there. There's a lot of like conventional bad 1983 male gazy stuff, especially once you account for the genre that it's in. Yeah. Um, where I don't know the fact that women are in it at all, I guess is, is good. Sure. <laughs> That's like counts for being progressive. I guess. Um, th- I mean, there, there are a couple like more specifically skeevy sort of things involving some um like what for example underage sex does to you sin wise like soul wise oh that we don't need to get all the way into i don't think okay um but yeah it's it's mostly just like this low level in passing sort of embedded low-key misogyny where you just like run into it a bunch of times and and it doesn't completely derail the book for me, but reading it and running into those passages, not knowing nothing about Piers Anthony, except that people, some people view him as problematic. I was, I knew what kind of problematic he was going to end up being from the stuff that I was picking up in in this, I guess. But it, it, it sounds like that does not, is not um, directly impacting how the like metaphysical morality stuff comes across. Like no, the- there's st- yeah, there's still some interesting stuff going on. Okay, even though you are like every time you run into a woman, it's just really important to notice stuff about her body and what is and isn't covered. Oh, um, and like how young she is or how hot she is or you know that kind of stuff. 
like when you're talking about fate, who's a woman or nature, who's a woman, it's just really important that you know what she looks like. And if she seems like you would want to have sex with her. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's important. It's, it's, it's good no, to- it's super important to know that. Mm-hmm. So if you want, you, you wanted to talk about other books that you might read if you were looking for something that, that like, like genre fiction that had something interesting to say about like the nature of existence maybe was a little like playing like fast and loose with some theology stuff or something, you know, just just like doing interesting stuff. It sounds like this is in like Neil Gaiman territory, Terry Pratchett territory. I was Terry Pratchett is exactly who I was going to bring up, especially if you're into like personified death, I guess. Yeah, sure. (laughs) But if, yeah, like this, strikes me as a sort of and he he's not trying to do terry pratchett mm, and mm. i i don't even i don't know enough about terry pratchett to know where he was in 1983 i think he was doing stuff yeah or like close to doing stuff but as genre as as like goofy engaging like genre work i think terry pratchett is doing a a better job <laughs> okay it's, it's hard to it's hard to like evaluate quality i think i think that his work is definitely what i would i would tell you to go read first and sure. it's probably i think pratchett's stuff based on the the bits of it that i've read they're maybe not trying so hard to say something big about morality and i do think the this book pale horse does have like a an interesting and worthwhile like exploration of that yeah. subject sure but as like fantasy i guess i think pratchett's stuff is is maybe more satisfying i'm not i'm not exactly sure how i want to put it but okay but yes terry pratchett's a good a good touchstone cool okay um yeah i just like this seems to occupy a space of the like kind of i don't know i fell down a rabbit hole of reading someone trying to define the term science fantasy as I was reading about this book. And I think that there's a lot of like fantasy in quasi modern settings that has only become more prevalent. So chances are, if you're reading like any modern fantasy, it's got elements of that today. Um, unless it's like wholly set up in an entirely different world, but, um, okay. Well, thanks for telling me about this book, Andrew. Um, you're welcome, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. It was a fine book. Um, and if folks don't want to go read it, they don't have to. We did it for them. Yes, and and this is um. Correct me if I'm wrong, Craig. But I think we did take this off of our website as like a if yes, we will do book that, that we, if we haven't already. To. Yeah. yeah, like we we do try as people with a as people who just want to talk about books with each other. I do think it's uh, there's a little, there's value in talking about books that do interesting things, but their authors suck. Like if you remember the like cat murder mystery detective yep. novel written by the Islamophobe guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, that, that Orson Scott card is, is, is another possible example. Like it's worth talking about that. But then as people with the platform, I guess we, we also need to think about like, highlighting other work that by people who don't suck. Are... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess just to put it bluntly. 
Sure, to put it bluntly. <laughs> and then also, like, not making money directly off of the works of people who who say and do stuff that we think is bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I don't know. That's what we can do. That's, That's what where we, we fall. Um, next week, I am going to talk about what? What am I talking about? Some um, book, probably. It is called Ash by Melinda Lowe. Um, so, you can look forward to that. Um, you can also send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter and Facebook uh, at overduepod. Thanks to Derek, Lindsay, Paul, Lessons, Ironic Onion. I was writing down usernames for a little while there. Uh, <laughs> Allegra, Erica, Amber, uh, thanks so much. Uh, our theme song was composed by Nick Lorangis. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website. We have a link to Apple. We have a link to Google. We have a link to our RSS feed. We have a link to our Patreon project, patreon.com slash OverduePod, where you get bonus episodes early. You get our current long read project, which is about Don Quixote. You get that early. Uh, You can come hang out with us when we record bonus episodes every other month or so Mm -hmm. and hang out in the chat and get rowdy, Mm -hmm. which people do do. It's fun. Um, I don't know. Anything else? I think that's it. it. I already talked about what I'm reading next time. All right. Thank you for listening. And try to be happy. the Peaky Blinders. God, I want that show to come back so Laura can watch the last season and I can just yell, we're the Peaky Blinders. There's at least two, if not more, scenes where they go, why are we doing this? Because we're the Peaky Blinders. And then they kill a bunch of dudes. Peaky Peaky Blinders. Got your Peaky Blinders on.